0: Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respect to the elders of the Gunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. Let's go. And welcome to the Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's Schools of Culture, History, and Language, and of Archaeology and Anthropology. And coming to you today from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today. My name's Jodie Trembath. I'm here together with my fellow familiar strangers. I've got Ian Pollock on my left. Hello. I've got Julia Brown. Hello, hello. And I also have Liam Gammon here today. Hello. Liam's a PhD candidate researching Indonesian politics in the Department of Political and Social Change in the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific. And he's also the editor of New Mandala, which is the ANU-based Southeast Asian Studies blog. Liam is filling in for Simon today because Simon is on fieldwork in Iran. At least we hope he is. We hope he's okay. We miss you, Simon. But in the meantime, let us get on and ask ourselves the questions, those burning questions that we have been wondering about ever since our last panel a month ago. Ian, will you start us off, please? What have you been thinking about this week?
1: Well, I've been thinking about Bitcoin, like anybody who has even a few dollars in their pocket and think about investing in it. Think about Bitcoin and how people make these arguments about how it's so different from other currencies, but really, it's just sort of the same. So what so was... imaginary. Make- <laughs> So what was making me think about that was a couple of podcast episodes recently, one on uh, NPR's Planet Money and the other one on Reply All, both of them talking about the same thing, which was people who have lost their Bitcoins. How could you lose a Bitcoin? It's supposed to be completely kind of digital, immaterial thing. Well, what they had done was gotten their Bitcoins ages ago before uh, Bitcoin was really like the big phenomenon that it's become. They'd forgotten about it. It stored it in one of these sort of Bitcoin wallets on a computer. The computer broke or they lost it. And so it's like their wallet with their Bitcoins somehow in it is buried in a computer somewhere that they may or may not have the technical ability to recover, that may be lost like up in an attic somewhere. It really brought that material aspect of Bitcoin right into the open in a way that you wouldn't expect. Uh, And it was fascinating listening to these two podcast episodes because these two people who have lost their Bitcoins are distraught because they're watching the price go through the roof and they're like, I have some of these, but they can't get them. And it's like, oh, I found the computer, but it's broken and how can I get it out? The emotions run high. And you could see how the same material problems of decay that would affect some other kind of material currency, like a coin or a bill, still applies to Bitcoin. The symbolic aspect of it, that uh, what it would mean to them to have these Bitcoins, to be a person who has Bitcoin, still applies, even though there's no material object. It just seems like as you run down the list of ways that you might analyze a regular currency, they all still apply. So what this brings me back to from my own reading, from my own thesis, is Chris Gregory's Savage Money. So looking at money, you analyze it in terms of kind of how it functions as a store of value, its utility for exchange, as a standard of comparison between things. But you focus on analyzing it symbolically, analyzing it institutionally, analyzing it materially, and on the ways that it kind of causes people to relate to one another. And I sort of feel like you could apply all of those analyses to Bitcoin
0: as well. Hang on, back up a second. So what do you mean by analyzing any kind of currency institutionally. What does that mean?
1: So in the case of a normal currency, the institution that backs it is a state. So you look at the mechanism by which a state enforces kind of the area in which that currency can be used. Yeah. So you've got a national border, and you've got whatever mechanism the state uses to back that currency and to give people confidence in its value so that they'll use it the way a currency is supposed to be used. The most common way would be historically anyway, to back it with precious metals like gold. So the gold standard. We don't use the gold standard anymore. The standard of value that a state uses, the mechanism, the institution that it uses is a little more nebulous. In the case of something like Bitcoin, the main institution you would use to say that kind of backs its value is the market.
0: Does it transcend the ways that money is used traditionally?
1: You know, other currencies to have for instance, a crisp, clean $100 bill, U.S., Benjamin Franklin. It has a value beyond that $100 to people as a store of value, as a, as a feeling of security, and um, as a kind of a talisman of a particular kind of lifestyle as well. And Bitcoin definitely does seem to play that role for people. I don't know if there's been any ethnography on this yet. And I'm dying to see what comes out
2: when there is some.
1: It's going to mm. take some time, I'm
2: sure. I, I think your comment about this being bound up in a certain kind of... Uh, well, thinking about it as a lifestyle product, I think is probably a good point, because as a currency, as we know it, as a m- simple means, means of exchange, it yeah, means of exchange precisely, it seems to be a little bit shaky. At the same time, as a store of value, I'm not really, I don't really understand that either, because it's not a thing. If I mm. own, if I distrust uh, currency for some reason, if I think that the U.S. Federal Reserve is about to crumble at any moment, and I'm invested in gold, okay, fine but I'm going to have a store of gold somewhere in some bank vault in Switzerland or under my house or in my backyard or something. With Bitcoin, uh, I just cannot get my head around the fact that uh, yes, it's, a, it's it's lines of code on a hard drive somewhere. But where's the thing? Yeah, exactly. I And maybe that just marks me as a Luddite, but it seems not practical as a means of exchange, A. B, it's kind of useless and risky as a means of storing value just because its value is so nebulous and also really, really volatile. It's lost like a quarter of its value just in 2018 alone. Boom and bust. Precisely, so I think that this, I've always thought of it as basically as one of these signifiers of one's own rad anarchist or libertarian politics, let's just say my my BS detectors are well and truly aggravated by this thing.
0: Well, I I hope that we'll get some some tweets on this from listeners, and maybe there are already ethnographies happening of this, but perhaps from other disciplines as well. So if anybody knows of research that's going on on Bitcoin in the social sciences, particularly, we want to hear about it. Please let us know. Tweet us at TFS tweets. We want to hear this stuff. Uh, Julia, what have you been thinking about this? This week.
3: So I have been thinking about recently the dispensability of emotional support pets in the context of human and animal kinship relations. This came to my attention with a news story about a young woman who was not allowed to board her flight in the US with her emotional support hamster. It's unclear as to what she was told to do with that hamster or what the consequences of her taking the hamster on board would be. But she made the decision in the end to flush the hamster down the toilet. The point that really disturbed me beside what may or may not have been fake news is the act of flushing your emotional support hamster down the toilet. There's a quote from the girl who spoke to a journalist afterwards and she said she was scared... I was scared. It was horrifying to put her in the toilet. I sat there for a good 10 minutes crying in the stall. So reading that, I mean, we can deduce that she certainly had an emotional connection to this animal. But anthropologically, I find it really curious It brought to mind Simone Dennis's ethnography called For the Love of Lab Rats, where she investigated the relationships that scientists, so immunologists, virologists and neuroscientists have with the lab animals that they study, particularly mice and rats. And the scientists spoke to Simone about being able to speak rat and knowing what the particular animals Like such that this sacrificial economy that was happening where the animals would ultimately have to be killed after the experiments was kind of balanced out with this calculus of care. So being a lab rat wasn't the equivalent of being a piece of scientific equipment to be disposed of. This kind of really highlights how ambiguous these human-animal relationships are, even in a very clinical setting, where you might assume there would be a detachment at the point of these animals being used for human gain, and therefore it's worth the sacrifice. But actually in the lived experiences of scientists, they do respect the animals and they take great care to minimise their suffering. Going back to this flushing the hamster down the toilet scenario where this young woman clearly felt the emotional pain of her hamster. She said it was scared as well as she being scared. I guess I'm just still so disturbed as to how she could have done this.
1: My feeling is that rather than kind of getting into psychological things about what this person did or didn't feel about the hamster, it's, it's better to start looking at the institutional frameworks. So for instance, we've got the airline, we've got the airport, you've got the law involved very heavily over the way people behave on airplanes and in airports, right? If you step out of line even a little bit, you could find yourself in serious legal trouble or even at risk of violence. When you're getting onto a plane, you're subject to all these different kind of institutional constraints. You're confronted with the air hostesses and the pilots who are dressed in uniforms and and sort of speaking over loudspeakers, over intercoms, creating this kind of distant voice of authority. And in the background, you always know, having passed through so much security in the airport, it's very kind of militarized.
0: Total institution.
1: That's right. In that kind of Foucauldian sense. And so the, the impetus towards doing what you're told by those people and conforming and obeying is clearly very, very strong because it compelled this woman to do something that hurt her deeply.
2: In a sense, we, when it comes to animals, we're all hypocrites. Pet owners who say that they love animals uh, would happily eat meat. and I mean, most of us are complicit in the horrors that are inflicted upon animals by the way animals are farmed, basically. In that sense, all of us are flushing hamsters every day. But, but by, by
3: our own hands, not yeah. directly. Like
2: Precisely. That. And because this is one of those cases where it just kind of, it's our, but that's our relationship in, in microcosm.
1: Violent institutions, institutions that are founded on violence, actually, I think, demand these kinds of sacrifices from us all the time, including of family members. For instance, if you're living in a police state and you have to inform on somebody in your family, I think that's a very common story.
0: Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. We will have to wrap it up there because we have gone over time on this round, but that's thought-provoking, Jules, and kind of sobering. Okay, so I guess I'm up next, and this week I've been thinking about overwork in academia. Not so much my own, actually other people's, But it's because there was a storm up on Twitter. Uh, It was because in 2014, anthropologist John Zyker from Boise State University put out the results of research that he's been doing about how academics use their working hours. And then last week, uh, a social neuroscientist from NYU, J. Van Bavel, He put out this tweet. He said, the average professor works over 60 hours a week and 30% of their time is spent on emails or meetings. And then in response to that, a Yale professor, who I've written about previously actually, Nicholas Christakis, uh, he responded with this. He said, I tell my graduate students and postdocs that if they're working 60 hours per week, they're working less than the full professors and less than their peers. And that blew up. It got a lot of traction in the real media, the real media, not just the social media as well. And it got this range of angry emotions from people, from all the way from, well, that's not fair because I have children and how am I supposed to keep up with this spirit of overwork that you're trying to foster in your PhD students and postdocs. And then at the other end of the spectrum were people saying anybody that's working 60 hours a week is ridiculous and they're doing academia wrong. I've never worked more than 35 hours a week in my life. And my husband and I were talking about this and he said, well, it seems to me this is just a culture of overwork that is pervasive all the way through academia. Like every time we talk about it, this is something that comes up.
2: I mean, the thing about academia is the fact that there's really no end to the work that you can do if you choose to do it. And I wonder whether there's a lot of academics have difficulty just drawing the line saying, no, that's enough. I've, I've lived enough of the life of mine that I'm going to live this week and then I'm going to go to the beach. I think that it's a very peculiar way of working, the way you, I mean, everybody knows the way you measure outputs, measure the quality of the work, and also the questionable relationship between the quantity of, you know, any given output and how much amount of a contribution you're actually making to the institution um, And, and how much the
1: institution rewards you for that.
2: It's difficult to say, really, what overwork is in an academic setting, because it's never going to be a nine to five office job, never has been... Um, Academics have a different relationship with their work, different motivations.
3: And having spent a bit of time hanging out with medical doctors, I can say that they also participate in this endless work. Like Quite often, they're thinking through unresolved issues that they may be having with their patients. They're feeling like they've got to educate themselves more all the time. That's just taking one profession as an example of how this applies to fields beyond academia.
1: It would seem that that concept of appropriate work and overwork would be something that comes out of a a different culture of working, like factory work, or agricultural labor, or something like that, where you're limited by factors like your body's stamina, the strength of your back, how long the sun is in the sky, and your ability to do that work. And that's what defines appropriate or inappropriate. If the sun is up, up and you're not in the fields, you're not working enough. Whereas if you're working on the factory line and your back gives out and you fall into the machine, then you're working too much. Then you've been overworked.
0: Not anymore.
1: Well, I know. But like, but these are these parameters of what counts as an appropriate amount of work seem to have come out of completely other areas of labor. Whereas with this life of the mind, which when it's at its best is fun and doesn't feel like labor in the same way that other kinds of work do which at its worst is a nagging earworm in your skull that even invades your dreams and that there is no time, conscious or unconscious, when you're not working, it becomes very hard to define along those parameters what is an appropriate amount. And it's, it's something we struggle with with ourselves too.
2: Most of the time you're working on your own. You're not being invigilated around the clock by your colleagues in the same way that you would be if you were working at a bank or a uh, government department or something, and you've got a team project and so on and so forth. So it's difficult to measure how productive you are relative to your colleagues. You don't find out until the publications are on the table, basically. In an academic department, your own and all of your colleagues' work processes and the way you get things done and how you work is almost a complete black box to mm. everybody else.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, we've totally solved it, right? Like, we absolutely <laughs> conclusively worked out. Putting whether everything or in a black not.
3: box is all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> As always, we come up with the anthropological answer to every question yes and no, and too early to tell.
0: And 42. <laughs> so, what are you thinking about this week, Liam Gavin?
2: I guess all that I would sort of um, contribute today is a few reflections on. What I, as a you know, as a blog editor that focuses on mostly Southeast Asian politics, think about the kind of contributions that anthropologists have made, and or, or you know could make to uh, debates about current affairs, and that anthropologists can ha- have got a really valuable contribution to make to um, questions about politics is the fact that consistently over the life of the site, some of the most uh, interesting and appreciated content has been from anthropologists doing fieldwork when there is some big political moment or major political phenomenon like an election.
1: So that ethnographic viewpoint has something different to contribute than, say, a political reporter who's based in the capital?
2: Yes. I, I think that the, the methods and the perspectives of anthropologists really do lend themselves to the kind of medium that New Mandala promotes, you know, the blogging medium. In a sense, it's looking at politics and national affairs and history and culture from from the ground up, basically. I sometimes wonder whether anthropologists underrate the extent to which they can make a really worthwhile contribution to questions about national politics. Um, I mean, of all the disciplines that sort of have input to our understanding of uh, politics and political life, I think the anthropologists are probably the most walled off. Do you think that's fair? My feeling is that uh, anthropologists feel like we need to take a long reflective
1: period before saying anything, and that's part of the issue, is an unwillingness to speak quickly. Um, so, you know, say that big event unfolds, three years later, our book about it will come out, rather than writing a, a quick a quick blog post at the moment that could contribute to that ongoing political discourse in the moment.
3: I'm also just thinking that there is this question of how the anthropologist disengages from their participants to speak out about things and I know that for instance my hesitation in talking about anything to do with my field it's to do with the human lives that I felt connected to and I imagine that it's quite different being a journalist or a politics student where you've just got that next degree of separation that allows you to speak without that kind of conflict
2: what I would just say is I think you're absolutely right on that point. And the reason why anthropological perspectives or ethnographic perspectives on politics are so valuable is exactly the same reason why it's challenging practically and ethically for anthropologists to contribute to those debates about national politics. I mean, If the idea of uh, one's going to a field site to spend time in a community to really sort of I guess, look behind the curtain of how people talk about politics or how people behave or things like that. Yes, it does create a kind of relationship with your subjects that means that you do have to think twice about the way that you use the data you get from them.
3: Yeah, there's this kind of impasse where it could be betrayal or it could be useful and you just don't know what way it's going to go.
1: But as a news reader... I feel like there's a huge appetite, I have a huge appetite, for the insights that anthropology can bring to political science and social science. So for instance, this last election, big election in America, we learned some things from the polls about who voted for whom. The next question is why? And the social scientists speculate. Hmm. The ethnographers have answers to those questions. Now those answers may be site-specific, but that's the best that we have to extrapolate from. so I, I I wish more anthropologists would make these kinds of contributions.
2: I totally agree, and and I think it would be really positive for more anthropologists to think of their work that touches on political questions as a real complement to the work that political scientists and or political sociologists do with the tools of comparative research and survey research and so on. so Get blogging, guys.
0: Yeah, so Liam, if uh, if our listeners do want to blog for you, how would they go about that? How do they get in touch with you?
2: First port of call should be uh, my inbox, where you can get me at liam.gammon at anu.edu.au or hit us up on Twitter at newmandala.
0: Perfect. Excellent. Well, that's unfortunately all we have time for today, but I want to say thank you so much to Liam Gammon.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's been great.
0: And thank you to Julia Brown. Thanks, Jodie. And Ian Pollock. Always a pleasure. And I have been your familiar stranger, Jodie Lee Trembath. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange and our executive producer, as always, is Ian Pollock. And today, for the first time, we've been produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show, and it helps make the show better. Our next episode will be an interview with Dr. Elizabeth Watt from Deakin University about sexual politics in the field. And you should also check out our latest blog post, which is a love letter to anthropology for World Anthropology Day, which is Thursday, the 15th of February. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. And if you want to contribute to our blog, or you have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this programme, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFSTweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Our music's by Pete Dabrow. Find a link to his EP in the show notes. And special thanks today go to Julia Miller, Will Grant, Nick Trembath and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, The Familiar Strange. Woo, thank you. Goodbye.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Gets worse every week. (laughs)